clear about one point. We're talking about a de jure, a legal annexation. The occupied territories are annexed to Israel. They have been because the essence of a occupation under international law, its essence yeah. is it's supposed to be temporary. temporary. That's what makes an occupation an occupation. If it's not temporary, it becomes an annexation. De facto. An annexation is illegal under international law. Assalamu alaikum and welcome brothers and sisters and friends to this uh, special uh, Islam 21C unscripted podcast. We have a few uh, important guests and very special guests to us. We have our uh, Middle East uh, editor Ahmed Hamouda. Assalamu alaikum Ahmed. Uh, Ahmed, you know that uh, the topic of Israel uh, has Israel and Palestine has always been uh, a kind of common feature of of international news, but it's it's been ramped up recently, according to um, because of a few a few events, uh, <laughs> namely the deal of the century, the proposed annexation of parts of Palestine, and we're very very happy and very grateful to have uh, a special guest uh, streaming in all the way from New York City, uh, USA. Um, he is, you know, anyone who uh, knows anything about the Israel-Palestine conflict uh, knows this name, um, especially if you're above the age of, you know, 25, 30, I think. Um, he has, uh, he's a distinguished academic uh, activist, uh, distinguished author. He's the author of books such as The Holocaust Industry and uh, uh, many other uh, discourses and, and, and books uh, on the topic. Uh, other than that, he um, he is uh, it's the first time he is appearing on the Sun Trinity podcast, and I'd like to introduce everyone to uh, Dr. Norman Finkelstein. Good morning, Doctor. Good morning to you. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. This is uh, we're very grateful you took some time out of your day. It's actually the first thing in the morning, probably for you guys, and uh, we're it's about three p.m. in the in the afternoon for us. So uh, we're very very grateful for that. Um, I mentioned that. Uh, a lot of younger people uh, perhaps don't know uh, your work uh, as much as people my age and, and, and older, maybe in, in, the, in their 30s. And I was wondering if you would um, just briefly outline uh, how you regard your own story, your own message, your own activism for the younger audience. Okay. Uh, by the way, what you're saying is uh, I can confirm it's factually true when I go through Palestinian neighborhoods in New York. There's a fairly dense Palestinian population in a part of New York called Bay Ridge. And when I walked through Bay Ridge, uh, it used to be if I walked down the block, a lot of people would come, or I walk in an Arabic restaurant, a lot of people would know me, greet me, and express their um, gratitude for the kinds of things I've done. Nowadays, young people don't know me at all. <laughs> No, I, I, it's, uh, no, I don't take it personally. It's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, the new generations are just not involved in the Palestine issue. Yeah. Uh, those, the 20, those under 30 years of age, uh, Palestine is like uh, what World War II is to me. You know, something past, mm. not present. Wow. Uh, in the event, um, 
I'm uh, 66 years old. Uh, my parents passed through the Nazi Holocaust. My father was in Auschwitz concentration camp. My mother was in Majdanek concentration camp. Uh, every member of my family on both sides, my father's side, my mother's side, was exterminated during World War II, which as a practical matter meant I had no grandparents, <coughs> I had no aunts, I had no uncles, I had no cousins. Uh, we were reduced to the nuclear family, mm. mother, father, myself, and two siblings. Um, I grew up in New York City, uh, and I attended college in New York. I attended graduate school at Princeton, studied for a short time in Paris, uh, was always politically of the left, wasn't really something of my choosing. That's where my parents were politically. And at a young age, as with religion, you tend to inherit uh, <clears throat> your parents' beliefs. Uh, you don't, at a young age, you don't, with some exceptions, um, you know, the great minds, Bertrand Russell or Noam Chomsky, were already thinking independently at a very young age. But I'm not a great mind, and I uh, inherited my parents' political beliefs and moral structure. So I was a person of the left, uh, involved in things like the, what we called back then the anti-war movement, which meant the Vietnam War, mm. uh, issues of civil rights, referring to black people. And it wasn't really until fairly late in the day, in 1982, when Israel invaded Lebanon, uh, that I became involved in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, it was a brutal invasion your generation doesn't even remember it, but Israel killed between 15 and 20,000 uh, Palestinians and Lebanese uh, during the Israeli assault. Uh, and to make a very long story short, the Israel-Palestine conflict ended up consuming the whole of my life, uh, adult life, uh, basically because I'm not a quitter and the conflict wasn't resolved, so I stuck to it. Um, you know, when the Vietnam War ended, people moved on to other causes, uh, but the Israel-Palestine conflict uh, didn't find any resolution, and so I stuck to it. Uh, I wrote, I wrote a lot on the subject, lectured for a period of time. I lectured quite widely, but after some uh, differences with the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement, yeah. um, I was effectively banned. So now I'm pretty much on my own. But I continue to write, ponder, rethink uh, the conflict. Yeah. Um, so, is it that uh, our vote of the causes of justice? I mean, you, you mention your focus on Palestine almost as if it was in incidental, because it was the only uh, continuing course of justice, let's say. But there are many other causes in the world still going on now in Iraq, in in uh, still in Lebanon, still in Syria. What, why why Palestine in particular? What is it in your upbringing that drove well, you? To I'm going to be honest about that because. I try to be ca as candid and as objective as I could be. There are two reasons for that. Number one, I don't have the mental range 
the mental capacity of someone like Professor Chomsky. I don't. You know, God was unequal in his distribution of uh, capacities, abilities, talents. Mine is, I have some ability, but I would classify it <clears throat> as quite limited. And the, the, so once I focused in Israel-Palestine, believe, believe me, that was quite enough <laughs> for my mental capacity. Yeah. I mean, every morning I wake up thinking, oh, God, I have to read this, and I have to read that, and I have to read that. Um, and the second reason is because I have found over the course of my adult life that my usefulness is generally due to my mastery of the detail. That at a kind of superficial or general level, pretty much a large number of people can handle the propagandistic claims of the other side. But when it comes down to the detail, it requires a lot of work to master that detail. Yeah. yeah. Just the detail on something stupid would seem stupid to most general listeners. There's this whole controversy about the fact um, that in UN Resolution 242, which is considered the defining resolution of the Israel-Palestine conflict, it was uh, delivered in November 1967. It calls on Israel to withdraw from territories occupied in the recent conflict. I'm calling it you, to you now verbatim from territories occupied in the recent conflict. Mm -hmm. Now, you will note, it doesn't say withdraw from the territories occupied in the recent conflict. So that definite article, those three letters, the, mm. Israel claims, it gives Israel title to keep some of the territories, because it doesn't say the territories, it just says territories. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know if your camera could see the fullness of my room, <laughs> but you could fill the fullness of my room with articles and books that have been written on that definite article, the. <laughs> it sounds insane, but it's true. And then to be able to master all the claims on the other side, and all the arguments it makes, it takes a lot of work. Yeah. You know, with all due regard for Professor Chomsky, uh, who was my closest, you know, he was a very close friend for 30 years. I don't know if he considered me a close friend, but I certainly <laughs> considered him. He was my, uh, he was my um, friend of first resort and last resort when I was having troubles or problems. I was always having troubles and problems. Um, but the thing with Professor Chomsky is he commands so much moral authority, deservedly so, that when he says, oh, that's nonsense, people say, okay, it's nonsense. How do you know it's nonsense? Well, Professor Chomsky said it's nonsense. <laughs> but with me, I don't command that kind of moral authority. So I have to read 10,000 books before I could say that's nonsense. And then 
site wire here and site 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 here. And after about 20 citations, people think, oh, all right, maybe he's got a point. <laughs> so uh, it just takes a lot of work if you want to. You, you have to remember one of the unique things about the Israel-Palestine conflict is that most other conflicts are not fought at the intellectual level. You're too young to remember, mm. obviously, but during the whole struggle against South Africa uh, in the apartheid era, the South Africans never really made much of an intellectual case in public. Mm. Uh, they have the resources, they didn't have the energy, and that's not how they fought it. So our side, so to speak, the anti-apartheid movement, at an intellectual level, it was a very easy fight because yeah. there was nobody on the other side. This is actually so what I was going to... Uh... I, I, I want to just finish. Yeah, carry on. But in the case of Israel, now, since I'm talking to a UK audience, it's quite interesting to note that Israel has mobilized all the top legal minds in the world. Mm. All the top legal minds in the world. And I would note, since I'm talking to a British audience, the concentration is not even the US, it's the UK. It's people like Malcolm Shaw. And then there is a uh, United Kingdom Lawyers for Israel, a large group. And so whenever Israel falls into some legal trouble, like it's now facing at the International Criminal Court, the court is deluged. You hear me? Mm -hmm. It's deluged with these lawyers writing what are called amici briefs, friend of the court briefs, trying to defend Israel. Hold on for one moment, just one second. Mm -hmm. So I have here, if you can see it in the camera, the stack of briefs that were submitted just recently to the UK, excuse me, to the ICC. So I'll just read you some of the titles. The Israel Forever Foundation. <laughs> then there is one. It's about 10 lawyers. That's called, it's a group brief. Uh, half American uh, and half others. This is against the case, Professor, against the case level that at Israel. Yes, the, the one the that uh, the, the chief prosecutor has said she wants to investigate pertaining to claims against Israeli war crimes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And these are friends of the court who are trying to defend Israel and convince the chief prosecutor not to pursue the case. So here's one from, I'll just give you, um, this is UK Lawyers for Israel. It's called UK LFI, mm. B'nai B'rith UK, BBUK. The International Legal Forum, the Jerusalem Initiative, and the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Here is one 
Amicus Curie from the European Center for Law and Justice. Here is one, International Association of Jewish Lawyers and Jurists. Here is one, Israel Bar Association. Here is one, the Lawfare Project, the Institute for NGO Research, Palestinian Media Watch, the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. And it goes on and on. I'm not going to bore you because you know, we have limited time. The point is, if you take, for example, the anti-apartheid movement, South Africa never had these kinds of resources. Mm. Now, remember, it's widely considered Israel is now an apartheid state, which is to say it's comparable to South Africa. But South Africa never had these resources. And so for me to be effective, which right now I'm working on this case, yeah. I have to read through all of this stuff. You cannot imagine, I'm serious now, I'm not using a poetic language. You can't imagine how, how um, mentally tormenting it is to read this. I'm serious, it's tormenting because lies piled on lies piled on lies and if you ever read legal briefs it's filled with you see the whole net the, the legal profession is just utterly corrupt <laughs> but leaving that aside for a moment every definite article every indefinite article like a the an uh every preposition in of between everything is footnoted Everything is footnote because they got this crazy idea in their heads that if you footnote something, somehow proves it's true. <laughs> of course, half the time you're just footnoting your friends. <laughs> so what does that prove? You know? Do you um, find yourself, that, Professor? Just that, so, what sorry. does that mean for me? I have to read the freaking footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to go back. Believe me, you're uh, laughing. How much do they appreciate it? It's a tough yeah. job. Someone's got to do it. How, how much support do you have in the counter case? Say that again. How much support do you find yourself uh, having uh, against uh, these lawyers? That's, that's, that's an excellent question. And I want you to keep putting me these questions because in a way they're illuminating. They're enlightening uh, for a general audience. Uh, the other side, the let's call, I don't want to call it pro-Palestinian side. I prefer the pro-truth and the pro-justice side. Um, they, put, they put in a lot. Hold on for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> this is where it's happening, folks. This is the other side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I mean, that's, that's it's, reassuring it's, to see, at least. It's it's like, oh. But I have to say, Speaking honestly, I have to say the other side, the quality is uneven because a lot of them are not the top lawyers. A top lawyer doesn't mean you're an honest lawyer. It just, you know, means you know how to play the game. Yeah. And the other side, they have a lot of top people because there are people in this world who just do not like what Israel is getting away with. They have tired of it, they have wearied of it, and they have some kind of moral conscience 
that tells them, you know what, it's time to put a stop to this. There's a, a phalanx of uh, lawyers around the world, the top, the top, who are defending the palace, the cause of truth and justice. And their briefs have been quite excellent. I can name one because his name is on the brief, uh, William Shabbos. He's a top person, um, probably the most knowledgeable in the world on the creation of the International <clears throat> Criminal Court and it, what's called the Rome Statute, which is the legal framework for the court. He knows it very well. He put in a, he submitted an excellent brief. The state of Palestine, what's called the state of Palestine, it recruited some top lawyers to make their case. The state of Palestine's brief, excellent. And then there are some around the world who just have wearied and tired and grown sickened and disgusted by how Israel keeps getting away, not figuratively, but literally keeps getting away with murder. And they wrote some excellent briefs. But then there are others which are beyond dreadful. Beyond dreadful, it's the sloppiness and the laziness mm. of the Palestine cause and the fact that people think they can get away with mindless sloganeering, but you can't win that way against the top lawyers in the world who, are, who have been recruited by or volunteer to serve the holy state of Israel. You can't get away with this sloppiness mm -hmm. against them. They know their craft. As a person who I respect a lot, uh, I feel reluctant to name names because, as you know, this is a uh, war zone and I don't want anyone to get killed or a minefield. I don't want anyone to get killed on my, my account. So unless a name is in print, I don't like to mention it. But one lawyer said, a guy who I respect, an international lawyer, very smart guy, who I respect, he said to me, referring to Malcolm Shaw, uh, who's the top in international law, he, uh, he said to me, he's not really a lawyer. He's a, he's a technician for hire. <laughs> Hire him, he will do the best to win your case. But for this lawyer who I have in mind, law is more than that. Law is supposed to be the instrument to achieve justice based on truth. It's supposed to be a civilizing instrument. And to just be a top here for him doesn't make you a lawyer, but he's a top gun. And you have to know your stuff. I mean, I have to sit down now. I just ordered two of his books, one of which is 800 pages, another of which is 600 pages. And when I have to sit down, ruin my summer, <laughs> reading his idiotic prose, 
I mean, most you're of also what being massively humble about it, Professor. I mean, uh, it's a huge uh, service to the cause of Palestine you're offering, and very few in the world are doing the same. But besides uh, that, uh, Professor, if I can, if I can just ask you about the contents or the main arguments these lawyers are using to justify the crimes of Israel, what? How can we summarize these arguments to the audience, and how? And what are the refutations for them? Uh, number, another excellent question. For a change of person asking me substantial questions, very unusual. <laughs> um, so I, I actually I'm grateful for that because. You know, when you work so hard on this stuff and then people start asking you mindless questions, it's like, mm. what's the point here? Um, there are two issues, in my opinion, there are two issues which the, uh, the Israeli side are making, two points they're making. Point number one is very technical. I'll try to summarize it as succinctly and simply as possible. The International Criminal Court gains its jurisdiction over cases when you join the court. Yeah. You have to join the court in order for the court to have jurisdiction. Uh, basically, the essence is a state says, we will delegate to you responsibility for adjudicating cases having to do with war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, aggression, will give you responsibility. But a state has to, the technical term is, it has to access the court, which just means it has to join the court. Yeah. Otherwise, they don't have jurisdiction. So the big point of contention right now as we speak and it will be decided within the next few weeks, is Israel's side is saying Palestine is not a state. It can't join the court or access the court because Palestine is not a state. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge point of contention. My friend, you might be the chief researcher of this program, but you do not want to engage in a mental activity <laughs> of figuring out whether Palestine is a state, because you will end up in a mental asylum. <laughs> so, so yeah. professor, besides, That's besides the, the subscription, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, okay. And the second point of contention is pretty simple. Uh, in order for the International Criminal Court to have jurisdiction over this issue, it has to have criminal jurisdiction. The Oslo Accord, which you know, this accord signed between Israel and uh, the PLO in 1993, the Oslo Accord explicitly says the Palestinian Authority has no criminal jurisdiction over Israelis, what's called Area C of the West Bank, which is where all the settlements are located, and over this 
and over Jerusalem. So the key areas or some of the key areas where Israel has allegedly committed war crimes, for example, by building the settlements, which is allegedly a war crime, and over persons like Israeli nationals. Mm. But the Oslo Accord says that criminal jurisdiction over the settlements, over East Jerusalem, and over Israeli nationals, that belongs to Israel. So the, there's a whole question here about how can the ICC, the International Criminal Court, have criminal jurisdiction over Israeli nationals, the settlements in Area C, mm. when the Palestine, the state of Palestine, one second. Mm. So how can the ICC have jurisdiction over Israel, Israeli nationals, crimes committed by the building of the settlements and East Jerusalem, when all of that jurisdiction, the state of Palestine had already handed away. Mm. The state that didn't exist, that they arguing doesn't exist. Say that again? The, the state that they argued does not exist. <laughs> Assalamualaikum guys, sorry to butt in, eh? but if you're enjoying this podcast, please head over to islamtunnelc.com forward slash donate to help us make more. And if you're not enjoying it, head over anyway and help us make better ones. Even if we assume that the, that the case is successful, uh, Professor, if we assume that the ICC are convinced by the uh, anti-Israel side of the argument, will Israel stop the annexation? This is, uh, I mean, Israel is above international law now. Well, wait, say that, repeat that question one more time. I can see you getting agitated. I can see it in your face like, uh-oh. I can see that side has some arguments. And now you're getting angry. Yes, I feel the same way. That's why I have to sit down and figure out how to reason this thing through. Now, what's your question? So, okay, so Israel has uh, snubbed the International uh, Criminal Court in the past and the Security Council and the General Assembly, why spend so much time arguing a case that even if successful, Israel is going to snub, judging you know, by the past? It's, a, it's an excellent question. And then you have to sort of, you have to speculate here. There are two possible, there are two possible interpretations. One interpretation is, the Israeli government always likes to say it's under existential threats. You know, the existential threats change every day. Hamas rockets are an existential threat. Hezbollah rockets are an existential threat. Iran is an existential threat. Um, BDS is an existential threat. And of course, when you need, when you have all these existential threats, Israeli Israelis think they need a strong man in office, and that's perfect for Netanyahu. Hmm. So he likes to foment, fabricate existential threats because then he looks more vital and necessity necessary 
in the minds of Israelis. It's a kind of elect, election ploy yeah. by him. So he's, he's always concocting existential threats. And so it might, it might be in part what you're saying. And then when uh, Netanyahu, if and when he wins in the ICC, he can go before his constituency and say, you see, I won another battle against the existential threat, which will get him reelected again. So there is an element of what you might call performance art to this. It's theater, and Israelis specialize in theater and theatricality. On the other hand, it need be said that Israel does occasionally have real fears that these paper victories, say the ICC, might be translated into something real. So let me give you an example. After Israel attacked Gaza in Operation uh, Cast Lead in 2008-9, came, uh, the Goldstone report by Richard Goldstone came out. Uh, and Richard Goldstone was a liberal Zionist Jew uh, accusing Israel of war crimes and possible crimes against humanity. And at that point, Israel was facing not just a paper condemnation, but you will remember in the case of the UK, Israeli officials were having trouble traveling. If you remember when Sippy Livni came to the UK yeah. and they were filing charges of war crimes against her. Mm. And this, this was becoming a serious problem for Israel. Their officials were having trouble traveling around the world mm. because activist groups were taking advantage of some legal opportunities to what's called universal jurisdiction mm. uh, to try to bring these people before the law. And so I think there is a real fear beyond the theatricality. There is a real fear that if an institution like the ICC declares them war criminals, they're going to have a problem. Mm -hmm. So, so along along the polit the legal battle, uh, Professor, uh, so I was going to ask this at the end, actually, strategies for resistance. How does the strategy for resisting the occupation change from those living inside what's called the Green Line, inside Israel, those living in Gaza and the West Bank, and those living in the West who uh, have an affinity and a connection with the Palestinian cause? So, so, for instance, can you speak to us about military resistance and uh, the, the justification for military resistance in Gaza and the West Bank? And likewise, if we cannot engage in the legal battle, what can be done for Palestine? Uh, there, are, there, are, there are three questions embedded in your question. 
So let me try to sort them out. Number one, you're obviously not naive young men. You are adult thinking individuals. So you're fully aware that there's nothing in this world called the law that's insulated from politics. Mm-hmm. Politics is always impacting on the law, in my opinion, more of the time rather than less of the time, unless we're talking about a traffic ticket. Okay, a traffic ticket, I'll grant, it probably has relatively little to do with politics. But once you get past traffic tickets, you're talking about politics. Depends who's driving. <laughs> oh, God, you're so right. <laughs> you're so right. I don't know how I could possibly have forgotten that at this particular moment. <laughs> That's so funny that you said that. Yes, depending on who you're, who's driving. Um, but you get my point, uh, I think. Um, so whatever kind of resistance the Palestinians put up and the unjustified, illegal repression of that resistance puts more pressure on the court to do the right thing. So if Palestinians are demonstrating non-violently on the fence separating Gaza from Israel, and Israeli sharpshooters are, as the most recent UN report documents, are intentionally killing children, medics, journalists, and disabled people, that puts a lot of pressure on the ICC Hmm. that it's going to have to investigate Israel because the criminality is so blatant. Same thing if Israel goes ahead with the annexation. The annexation is a blatant, flagrant criminal act under international law. So if Israel goes ahead with the annexation, causes problems at the ICC. So you will know, I don't know how closely you follow these affairs, a large number of very prominent British official, uh, British Jews, a large number of very prominent British Jews recently took out a large ad saying, Israel don't annex. Uh, even people like uh, Dame Margaret ha- uh, Hodge, who's the most miserable creature on God's earth, <laughs> she signed it because they recognize it's going to make things very difficult to them. Yeah. Now, how is the ICC not going to indict if Israel engages in this blatant, blatant, flagrant, war crime of annexing occupied territory, you know? So 
any kind of resistance impacts on the court. Um, on the, uh, in addition, if there were a, a broad movement organizing under a single demand, time to indict Israel. It's time to indict Israel. Go through all the times Israel has gotten away with murder after Operation Cast Lead, after Operation Protective Edge, the settlements, the killings, the land confiscations, everything. Time to indict Israel and direct it at the ICC, direct that campaign at the ICC. It will cause the ICC problems. Because there are a lot of people, as I, 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 I guess I didn't say, um, so I'll say it now. They are, there are quite a lot of people I wouldn't say a majority, but certainly a significant number inside the ICC who have tired and weary of the ICC protecting Israel. You know, non-whites, you know what they call the ICC? They don't call it the International Criminal Court. You know what they call it? The International Caucasian Court. It's true, because the only people who have ever been indicted or convicted in the ICC have been uh, Africans. Yeah. That's it. Mm. There's no, there's never been a case. <laughs> and they, they conscripted as their chief prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, who's from Gambia. So they have a black face for this Western court, yeah. which thinks itself so heroic. I mean, they think they are so heroic and so courageous. Oh, it takes so much heroism and courage in the hog to indict African leaders. Oh, yeah, you're going to pay a very big price. We know that everybody in, uh, in the Western world wants so much to go to Rwanda. Yeah. Now, you know, it's such a big price to indict this or that African uh, leader or rebel leader. Uh, so there's a lot of people. I, don't, I, want, I can't do a poll. But there are quite a number of people inside the court who don't like what this court is turning into. It just turned into, or maybe it was always intended to be, uh, just a court of Western Westerners who pretend to be enlightened um, and exponents of the rule of law for Africans. Mm. Now, of course, no war crimes have been committed by any one in France, in, in Great Britain, uh, in, uh, in uh, the U.S. In the last year, in the last year, Fatou Bensouda, she started investigations which impact on Britain, Israel, the one I refer to, and the U.S. regarding Afghanistan. Is this what your most recent book, I Accuse, is about? No, actually, it's not. What my I accuse is about mm. was the Fatou Bensouda whitewashing oh, okay. Israel in a previous case mm. that was brought before it for its killings of passengers on the humanitarian flotilla that oh, was right, headed yeah. to Gaza in May 2010. The mm. flagship was the Mavi Marmara, hmm. 
The Mardi Marmorot was registered to the country called the Union of the Comoros. Yeah. The Comoros are a state party to the ICC. So the ICC was asked by the Comoros to investigate criminal charges against Israel. Mm. And Fatou Pensouda engaged in such a shocking... I can't even find the words for the kind of cover-up mm. she engaged in. And very strangely, something happened at the ICC. She declared the case closed once. Inside the ICC, there was pushback. They didn't like what she did. The lies were too blatant. They were too flagrant. She was forced to reopen the case. She declared it closed a second time. Elements in the ICC they said, not so fast. She was forced to reopen it a second time. Mm -hmm. She then declared it closed a third time. And now that's under appeal. Mm -hmm. And so she was kind of exposed and discredited by this process. And then, not the Union of the Comoros, but the State of Palestine filed a new complaint with her. And that's the one we're talking about now, the one I refer to. And so she's in a bind. She can't do, get away with what she did a second time. And so it's a very funny story. I mean, if it didn't have to deal with real people and real human yeah. tragedy and criminality, it would be funny. Fatou Bensouda, she switched sides. She's now championing the Palestinian side. And she's, yes, you're smiling. Yes, it's very funny. She's now switched sides. And she's become the big champion of the Palestinians against Israel and Israel's lawyers. Now, the funniest part is me, because the Israel side, of course, hates me to begin with. But now the so-called pro-Palestinian side hates me because I wrote this whole book attacking <laughs> Fatou Bensouda. She's <laughs> big hero. Maybe that was their grand plan all along, <laughs> to discredit so, Norman Finkelstein. Nobody will speak to me on either side. Because, you know, I'm a novice at this, so I have a lot of questions trying to figure out the law. I swear to you. I sent them free copies of my book. Nobody even sends a thank you back. They're so afraid, you know. They're so afraid. These people are afraid of their own shadow. They're such cowards, these lawyers. The most cowardly mm. bunch of people in God's earth. <laughs> Why is it, Professor, that people are so afraid to criticize Israel? I mean, recently in the UK, um, mm. it, it's almost become, almost become part of legislation that uh, if you criticize Israel or compare it to certain regimes in the past, you become an anti-Semite and uh, Jeremy Corbyn was taken out for the, under the same guise. And it's almost become institutional that you can't 
uh, become active in a political party or an influencer without being kicked out? And Look, um, first of all, we have to be careful. I think we have to try to be careful about uh, evaluating, assessing uh, politics. I followed Jared Lee Corbyn cam uh, campaign very closely. Mm. I had a number of friends in the UK who kept me abreast on literally a twice daily basis. I was very interested in watching how things unfolded. Should to just jump to the end and I'll fast forward to the end and I'll get to the beginning. The evidence seems to be that Jeremy Corbyn did not lose because of the anti-Semitism campaign, which seemed to have had relatively little resonance in the British population in general. They didn't seem to care very much, judging from the polls. What killed him was Brexit. He couldn't change the subject. Yeah. He, puts form a he puts forward a radical platform on things like your NHS and things like that. But um, uh, Boris Johnson got just the right slogan. Mm. And it was clear people, a large constituency felt, we voted to get out of the EU. And now these elites are trying to reverse the popular referendum. Yeah. And Johnson won on that. The one aspect which did seem to affect Corbyn significantly was he was perceived as a weak leader. And part of the reason he was perceived, in my opinion, he was perceived as a weak leader is he didn't stand up to the, I prefer to call it the Jewish Israel lobby. He wouldn't, he couldn't, he didn't want to stand up to them. He didn't want to say what was staring him in the face and what he certainly knew. The campaign had nothing to do with anti-Semitism. There is no evidence any evidence whatsoever, none, that there is significant anti-Semitism in the UK, a marginal portion of the population, maybe 5%, 10% harbor what you might call strong anti-Semitic views. The whole campaign was a complete farce completely fabricated in order to defend Israel. What, what is anti-Semitism, Professor? I mean, you... Wait, 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 let me just yeah. finish. However, there was a curious twist to it because the whole British ruling elite, not just the Tories, but the Labour Party leaders hmm. discovered that they could use anti-Semitism not to protect Israel, but to oust a radical labor candidate. Mm. So now you had a 
confluence of interests between the whole British ruling elite, the entire media establishment from the Guardian and the Independent on one end to your tabloids on the other end, and all the papers in between, all of them shouting and shrieking about anti-Semitism, but most of them, they didn't give a darn about Israel. They cared about the fact that this radical labor candidate might upset the social hierarchy and that their positions, not just financial or economic, their social positions, they all, you know, the editor of The Guardian, they all feel threatened by this leveler. He wants to level society, bring down the elites, bring everybody down to the same level, this radical leveler. And so the Jewish elites worked in collaboration with all the British ruling establishment using exploiting the weapon of fighting anti-Semitism, which doesn't exist in any significant way in the UK. It's ludicrous to claim otherwise. To use the weapon of anti-Semitism oust someone who is not just critical of Israel, but critical of the whole social economic structure in the UK. And that's what made it so powerful a weapon this time around. It wasn't just about Israel. The Jewish elites were the poison tip of this spear which was the whole British ruling elite. Mm -hmm. Just like in the US, exactly the same with Bernie Sanders. When the whole elite, the Democratic Party elite, finally brought him down after uh, the South Carolina primary, it wasn't just his views on Israel. Yes, there were some who were concerned about his views of Israel, like your a British Board of Deputies, Mm. but they were more concerned, the Democratic elite, about what he represented to the whole economic and social structure in the United States. And he had to be brought down. And after the South Carolina primary, they took out their wrenches and started to break the kneecaps. So Amy Klobuchar, one of the candidates, drops out. Pete Buttigieg, one of the candidates, drops out. And everybody piles on Bernie to stop him, breaking all the kneecaps. And that's what happened in the UK. So we have to, I think, make two distinctions. One, it wasn't the anti-Semitism campaign that defeated Corbyn. It was the Brexit issue. Mm. Two, it wasn't just Israel that was behind the anti-Semitism campaign. It was the whole British elite across from the Tories to 
the leadership of the Labour Party and the entire media, BBC, Sky News, everyone, the entire print media, what used to be called the print media, the newspapers, they all wanted to bring him down, but not just because of Israel. It was much bigger than that. It's the kind of threat he posed to the whole system. Salam guys, me again, reminding you to head over to islam21c.com forward slash donate to keep the lights on on Islam21c. We pride ourselves on being independent and being funded by the grassroots community. Let me uh, let me just uh, probe you further on something you mentioned. Um, you might get some pushback if, for saying, you know, there's no significant anti-Semitism in the UK. Um, what would you say to someone who has experienced it? You know, maybe Jewish people going about their daily lives. Are you, would they, would, I mean, paraphrasing what they might say, are you denying our experience of, of everyday anti-Semitism in the UK? Well, first of all, yes. I'm not, I'm not blaming them, but Jews tend to, be anti, uh, tend to be paranoid on that particular issue. There's a very famous film, Woody Allen's Annie Hall. And uh, if you ever watch it, it's a very excellent film. Very funny, extremely funny. Maybe it's Brooklyn Jewish humor, but it's funny. You get it anyway. And uh, at one point, he's walking down Central Park, the sidewalk near Central Park with a friend of his. And the friend says to him, says, what did you just say? And Woody goes, Jew, didn't you say Jew? He said, no, I asked, what did you say? <laughs> you said Jew, Jew. And he's going, did you hear him? He said Jew, he said Jew. Yes, Jews are that way. You know, there's a, there's a historical experience that might explain that hypersensitivity, but there's also a hypersensitivity. Number two, there's a world of difference between what you might call anti-Semitism and what you'd call a prejudice, a, um, a, um, a stereotype, a negative stereotype hmm. that you carry about people. Everybody has to deal with prejudices. If you're short, if you're fat, if you're ugly, uh, you always have to deal with those kinds of unfair presuppositions that people make of you. You know what that's called? Are you ready for this? It's called life. You know, if you're bald, you're not happy that you're bald and people make, you know, unfair assumptions about you if you're bald. Um, that's just life. So I don't think there's any grounds to foment a hysteria if somebody carries around a negative stereotype of you. Jews are cheap. Okay, fine. Not a pleasant thing to have to deal with. Muslims beat their wives or Muslim women are repressed. Okay, not a pleasant thing to have to deal with. Um, There are all sorts of prejudices about Asians. Some some will say that this creates a a hostile environment, uh, Professor. It's it's, it's conducive. That's an excellent point. But then you have to ask the question, as a practical matter, 
as a practical matter, does this hostile environment manifest itself in ways which are prejudicial to your life's existence? So let's take practical examples. Hmm. Are Jews discriminated against housing in the UK? Do they have problems renting a home or purchasing a home in the neighborhood because there's Jew they're Jewish? Is there any evidence of that? Not that we know of. Are, are Jews discriminated against in employment? Is there any evidence that any employer will not employ you because you're Jewish? Any evidence? I'm not even talking about 5%. I would like to see 1%. 1% mm -hmm. who will not employ you because you're Jewish. Education. Is there any institution of higher learning in the UK which looking at your application and seeing a Jewish last name will not give you entry? Is there one? Media. Is there a single media outlet? One major media outlet, you know, maybe George Galloway's media outlet, but <laughs> major, major media outlet that will not hire you as a broadcaster or it's publishing a, a journal, will not hire you because you're Jewish. Is there any? Actually, the truth is, it's just the reverse. If you're Jewish, you probably have a much better chance of getting into a law firm because you're Jewish. You probably have a much better chance of getting into the academia if you're Jewish. So as a practical matter, you know, it used to be that when you fought bigotry, you fought it by trying to ensure mm -hmm. equal opportunity of rights in housing, in education, in uh, employment. In, what what'd you say? Employment. Employment. Yeah. yeah, that's what it meant. It didn't mean going around examining your mental thoughts. Mm -hmm. Because you know and you know, I don't care if you're the most devout Muslim on earth, all the time thoughts are going through your head, which you wish they weren't going through your head, but they go through your head. You know? Not my head. <laughs> <laughs> What does Islam say about lying on the podcast? <laughs> and um, so, but we don't police thoughts. We can't police thoughts. The human mind is a very complex instrument, and you can't control every thought that passes through your mind. Mm. So the issue is when you say hostile working environment or hostile environment, I want to see how that is manifested yeah. concretely and which then impinges or constrains your life's opportunities, your ability to realize through your efforts and natural gifts, your dreams in life. That to mm. me is significant. <clears throat> but if you're asking me, to police somebody's thoughts, A, I don't think it can be done, and B, as the German folk 
song says, die Gedanken sind frei, thoughts are free. I don't want anyone policing thoughts or indicting me for a, so to speak, politically incorrect thought that might pass ephemerally mm. through my mind. So, Professor, would, would you say, uh, just to add to, to what you're saying here, um, that the equivalence of um, some in the United Kingdom, not necessarily Jews, but pro-Zionists, and sorry, sorry to take it slightly off topic here, uh, the fact they try to equalize between Semitism and Zionism actually exposes what is otherwise enshrined in law and a protection for the Jewish community to harm and hostility on the basis that if you say that Zionism is part of Semitism, for you to criticize Zionism, you would naturally be criticizing Semitism. Look, if you're a political person, you have to think about how to formulate issues and questions and concerns in a language that people understand. I'll give you a concrete example from here, from my country, and then I will go to your question. A very bright young man, I saw him interviewed, he's running for office in the state of New Jersey, and he was asked, where do you stand and defund the police? He says, defund the police, the public doesn't understand that, defund the police. Are you saying we're not going to have any police? You know, the public think that's totally crazy. <laughs> so he says, why don't we reformulate it in ways that the public understands, like yeah. police have an inflated budget. Isn't it time we take away some of that money from the police and give it to social services? Mm. Or police have all these legal immunities which prevent them from being prosecuted and convicted. Something called the 48-hour rule, uh, all sorts of special uh, uh, immunities that they get. So he says, I'm not going to sign on to defund the police because the public doesn't understand that. I want to discuss concretely what you're mm. talking about. And then I'm on board for everything. I want to eliminate those legal immunities. I want to reduce the, the bloated British police budgets. I think that's all correct. Returning now to your question. For the broad public, what is Zionism? Yeah. What is Zionism? Do they even care? You think, go to uh, Liverpool in a bar. How many people are talking about Zionism? You know? No, no. Same thing with Semitism. They don't mean anything to anyone. Mm. Now listen, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Zionism. So I have a stake in it. Mm. And given the fact that I was never able to get a job, <laughs> that's all I have left is that stupid dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> Here am I telling you, forget it. Don't argue about those things. Semitism, mm -hmm. Zionism. You know, that's what these Jewish crooks want you to do. 
They want you to spend hours talking about the Jewish people because there's nothing they like more than talking about the Jewish people. They love their navel. So you're ending up, instead of talking about the blockade on Gaza, instead of talking about the settlements, instead of talking about the annexation, you're going to sit down and talk with, um, what's his name? Oh, God, his name just slips my mind. The one who did that uh, eternal program in the history of the Jews. Uh, Simar, uh, Simon Shama. You're going to sit down with Simon Shama and start talking about Semitism and Zionism and thisism and thatism. That's not the issue. The issue is Israel's human rights violations, Israeli human rights crimes, Semitism, Zionism. It's just totally beside the point. Yeah. And so I don't think we should get bogged down in those kinds of discussions. Noam Chomsky considers himself a Zionist. Benjamin Netanyahu considers himself a Zionist. <laughs> Abigdor Lieberman considers himself a Zionist. What does Chomsky have in common with Avigdor Lieberman? They're both Zionists. So it, means, it means the term is so broad and so abstract that it doesn't mean anything. Whereas if you talk about, do, does Israel have the right to create a state which legally discriminates against it's non-Jewish population. Mm -hmm. That's a simple, concrete question, which most even non-liberal Jews would have struggle mm -hmm. answering. Israel proclaims it's the nation state of the Jewish people. Okay, but what does that mean for those who are not Jewish in Israel? Mm -hmm. Is it right that a citizen of Israel should be a second-class citizen simply by virtue of the fact that he or she is not Jewish? Does that sound right to you? There you begin to have a concrete political conversation. Whereas if you start talking about Zionism and Semitism, mm -hmm. you end up in this never ending mm -hmm. disquisition about nothing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's more to adopt a type of universal language, uh, human rights, international law, uh, what everybody recognizes, because it seems uh, that much of even academia uh, has been shifted in that direction, almost like the goalposts of the debate have been set by the Zionists to uh, to uh, don't use that word anymore. Topic. Can't use the word goalposts. No, Why is that <laughs> Zionist? But, but also, Didn't you also hear his answer on, uh, on, on ethnic originality. Yeah. You know, b besides what's happening uh, politically or legally, look at arguments it's... on ethnic originality and and putting the burden of proving. Your originality on the on those who existed there before the Zionists invaded. Listen, there's a whole problem with the left now. The you I call it the left. You'll just call, let's call it, you may want to call it the secular, uh, secular, uh, progressive side of society. Mm. And uh, the problem is much bigger than the issue of 
policing what you're allowed to say about Jews. It's policing all thought in the name of political correctness. You can't criticize anymore uh, any any ethnic group on any basis because it's considered, you know, as you called it, a, a harassment or uh, disrespect. Uh, there's a uh, there was a, a very vital left tradition of support of freedom of speech, and I think that that uh, tradition has been under assault. Uh, you saw it with the Labour Party's reaction to the whole anti-Semitism, all the anti-Semitism claims. Uh, ironically, it's been uh, said, it's been kind of appropriated by right-wing. Uh, um, the freedom kind of, of speech issue. Yeah. 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 Everybody. First of all, it's very funny with the anti-Semitism campaign at, at Labour Party. Half or more of the people expelled were Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> The wrong kind of Jews. Tony Greenstein, yeah. Jackie or Jackie Walker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're all. <laughs> it was complete insanity, you know, um, because there's this whole uh, politically correct campaign, which is uh, curbing basic, curbing basic right to free speech. It was a complete collapse by the Labour Party. Uh, they, I mean, the, the cases I was reading, I have a very good friend, colleague, uh, Jamie Stern Weiner, uh, and he was, he wrote a lot on it. A very smart guy, of course, Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the cases were crazy. What they were accusing people of anti-Semitism for. Uh, so I, I think it's there's been a very regressive mm -hmm. development in a culture which once prized freedom of speech. It's going out the window because mm -hmm. of this political correctness, this lunacy, of which, again, Jews capitalized on they then start to use that weapon of political correctness to say, I feel harassed, I feel hurt, I feel pain, you know, uh, as grounds for crit of um, limiting any criticism of Israel. Yeah. It's a court-based phenomenon. I mean, in the oh. UK, we've got some like prominent far-right people even, uh, like Tommy Robinson, Katie Hopkins, who've uh, apparently, you know, um, discovered a love for Israel and kind of um, clothed themselves in flags at marches and stuff. And it's 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 a very strange kind of a it spectacle. Is it is strange. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Mm. And the explanation for that you'll find, I think, kind of paradoxical. It is true that a lot of right-wing they call it alt-right or yeah. neo-fascist. I don't know why everyone has to use neo. They're not neo-fascists. They're fascists. <laughs> this, this is not... Neo sounds more sinister. It sounds... Sounds cooler. More interesting. Like you have more... You're more profound when you say yeah. neo. Like you knew the real thing and now you know neo. No, 
Pontificate. Pontificate, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but they all love Israel. Yeah. They all love Israel. Whether it's Bolsonaro in Brazil or Urban in Hungary, they all love Israel, these fascists. And it's an interesting question why? And the world's leading authority on fascism is an Israeli. And he pondered the question. And his response is quite illuminating. He's a smart guy. He said, they love Israel because in their minds, I know you'll be surprised by what I'm about to say, Israel is not Jewish. You see, in Western culture, there was a kind of traditional image of a Jew. A Jew was cerebral, tricky in business, physically weak, feeble, you know, like a Woody Allen type. That was a Jew in the West. Israel is and also cerebral and progressive in his or her thought. That was another aspect. But then, okay, there is an element of the, the uh, typical Jewish or anti-Semitic stereotype. They do think Israel controls the world. Mm. They do. They think the Jews control the world. So that's true. That's one of the reasons the the fascist right likes Israel because they think Israel controls the White House. Mm. So we can get to Israel, we can get to Trump. So it's just a, a way station to get to the United States. But mostly Israelis, they are ubermenschen. That's what the Nazis call the supermen, the ubermenschen. They're fighters, they're racists, they're supremacists. They hate Muslims and they hate Arabs and they hate Africans. Mm. That's what appeals to them. So this uh, scholar said, they love Israel, but they don't see Israel as Jewish. Would you see you, them along uh, uh, a similar thing something. about BJP's India? Well, also Modi. Yeah. yeah. But if you take someone like Woody Allen, who was a typical Jewish stereotype, do you see him as a fighter? Not really. Do you see him as killing Arab children? Not really. Do you see him as hating Arabs and hating Muslims? Not really. It's not the type. It's not the type. Hmm. But if you look at Abigdor Lieberman, yeah, you see that, you know? You see a little Hitler in that guy. Actually, a big Hitler in that guy. Hmm. You see a Hitler. And that's what they like. So they like Israel not because it's Jewish, but despite it being Jewish, mm -hmm. they don't even see it as Jewish. Some, some will say it. that we managed to, uh, we Muslims managed to unite what were traditionally opposites. So <laughs> a great achievement on that respect. <laughs> There's some truth in that, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. You're welcome, sort of thing. <laughs>
But yeah. Professor, just before we wrap up, uh, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, I'm very grateful. I, I, I wonder if uh, we can, uh, you can briefly comment on uh, Netanyahu's plan to annex the rest of the West Bank and the, and the Jordan, uh, Jordan Valley, and, and how that reflects on the future of Palestine and the future of Palestinian statehood. Okay, I'm going to keep it brief because I have work to do. I have legal briefs to go through. Yeah, <laughs> we know how much my, you love them. My favorite daily torment. <laughs> um, obviously, in recent days, it's clear it's causing him those political problems. Namely, uh, it's too flagrant a violation of international law and Israel's traditional supporters. In the United States, it was yesterday, the Senate Democratic leader Charles Schumer and Robert Menendez, who are the two strongest supporters of Israel in the Senate, uh, they signed a letter saying don't annex. Wow. For the same reason that those British Jews I mentioned, because it becomes very hard to defend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I still will put my money, the little that I have. I will put it on him annexing, but not the Jordan Valley and not the West Bank. Uh, I don't want to end the program on a technical note, but I will just try to sketch it out as quickly and as accessibly as I can. The Jordan Valley is on the border with Jordan. And then on the other side is the state of Israel. And in the middle is this West Bank full of Arabs, two and a half million Arabs. If he annexes the West Bank, excuse me, if he annexes the Jordan Valley, mm. and here is Israel, what about all the people in between who don't have any voting rights? It's going to look like one state. If you look at the map, it will look like one state with a large part of the population not having any voting rights. So what are people going to think? They're going to think apartheid. There's this, because one border is here, the other border is there, and yeah. in the middle there are all these people without any voting rights. Remember, Netanyahu is not a politician, mostly. He's a showman. He cares about the theater, the performance, and he cares a lot about props. You remember when he wanted to, to demonize Iran, he holds up that stupid picture of the atomic bomb, you know, the cartoonish picture and the UN. Well, he has a problem. If he holds up that map, here's one border, here's the other border, and in the middle, there are all these people with no voting rights. That map is not a very good prop for this showman. However, if he annexes the settlement blocks, which are right next to Israel, he can pretend it's not true. But Israel cooks the numbers. He'll say it's only 5% of the West Bank. And then all the rest, he says, it can be a Palestinian state. So everyone will say, oh, 
the Palestinian state is still alive. Thank goodness the two states are still alive. And they'll say it was a gut-wrenching, a heart-wrenching compromise by Netanyahu because he wanted the whole West Bank because it's the home of the Jewish people. But he only annexed 5%, even though it's not 5%. He only annexed 5%, and he had to annex it to appease the right wing in his coalition. You know, I could write the script. <laughs> I could sit here and in one hour write the script, and everybody's going to breathe a sigh of relief and say, well, we all know, knew they were going to annex the settlement blocks anyway in any final settlement. Please, please don't do that, though. <laughs> don't, don't do a fatua bensuda. <laughs> it's it's very easy. So I still think he'll annex the settlement blocks and everybody will say, uh, thank God the two-state settlement is still alive. It's 95% of the West Bank and blah, 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 blah. Assalamualaikum guys, last reminder I promise, head over to islam21c.com forward slash donate to help this movement get to the next level. So we have genuine, high quality media articulating Islam in the 21st century and developing confident Muslims impacting the world for the better. So I think um, I'm going against the odds now because everybody's saying it's going to be the, uh, the Jordan Valley. I say no, it's going to be the mm. settlement box and he'll get away with it. Unfortunately. Okay. Uh, anyway. Let's be clear about one point. We're talking about a de jure, a legal annexation. The occupied territories are annexed to Israel. They have been. Because the essence of a occupation under international law, its essence yeah. It's, it's supposed to be temporary. temporary. That's what makes an occupation an occupation. If it's not temporary, it becomes an annexation. And annexation is illegal under international law. Israel has occupied the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza, for 53 years, which is older than either of you, and it may be older than both of you combined. So, after that period of time, we can reasonably infer that it's not temporary. And if it's not temporary, it's not an occupation. In it, it's an annexation. So it is de facto and has been hmm. an annexation of the whole of the occupied territories. And we shouldn't use any longer the language of occupied. We can use either illegally occupied because it's no longer a legal occupation because occupations are allowed. In the course of war, let's say Britain is engaged in a war with Germany and it'll occupy part of Germany as it did after World War II. Yeah. So and that occupation was elite was legal. It becomes illegal when you have no point of leaving, no intention to leave. Then it's an annexation and that's illegal. Mm. So it's long become an annexation.
So either you call it the illegally occupied territories or the annexed territories. It's not an occupation yeah. any longer. The only thing that's now being debated is whether to legally uh, uh, annex the territories. But they are annexed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, um, thanks very much, Doctor. Uh, I really want to continue the discussion, but I'm wary of the time. Uh, and, uh... I am too. Yeah, so uh, maybe maybe sometime in the future we could uh, speak again. But I was, uh, we're very uh, very grateful that you took time out uh, of your day to speak to us, uh, especially on the Sabbath, hey? So uh, <laughs> well, little joke there. I have to check my calendar, <laughs> my Jewish calendar. I'm sure you're not working. <laughs> but uh, I, saw, I saw a funny joke today. Um, Somebody on an, uh, was on a plane and he asks a rabbi, uh, can I fly in this plane on the Sabbath? He says, yeah. The rabbi says, yeah, just make sure you fasten your seatbelt. Why? Because then you could say you're wearing the plane. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I don't know. That was a good joke. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, thank you very that, much. That shows you, by the way, why Jews are such good lawyers. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Because that's exactly what an international lawyer would say. You're Professor, not, don't get us in trouble, please. You're not breaking the, the Jewish law by, by uh, flying the plane. You're wearing the plane. Yeah. How, wearing the plane? Yeah, you fasten you you your seatbelt. And that's why they're such good lawyers. It's a very, very tiny step mm. from being a Talmudist <laughs> to being a lawyer, because it's the same thing. Yeah. Look, you can joke, you can laugh, but a lot of, uh, you know, a lot humor is humor because it's true, a large part of it. If you go into a subway now in New York, go into a subway car, the only people who read anymore, the only people who read are Orthodox Jews. They're reading the Talmud. They're reading the Talmud. And that's why they make such good lawyers. Mm. Because what's the Talmud? It's just analyzing language. Mm. Analyzing yes. language. That's why they're good lawyers. Nobody else reads in the subway. I notice they always have the book open, always reading. You know, and let me just say, God bless them. They keep alive reading as an art. Yeah. You know, so, but I'm saying that's exactly the argument that a lawyer would use. Yeah. You go to court. Well, he was he wasn't flying the plane. He was wearing the plane. <laughs> You're laughing. That's what I have yeah. to get to now. These yeah. legal briefs. I said mental torment. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> They're killing me. <laughs> thank you very much for uh, taking your time out. And uh, yeah, thank you very much at home for watching. If you like this podcast, give it a like and a share. Um, get involved in the comments as well and uh, subscribe to Islam 21C uh, for and the Unscripted Podcast wherever you get your podcasts we're on Apple, Spotify, Google Play Store all that kind of good stuff uh, if you uh, subscribe to this uh, if you're watching this on YouTube if you subscribe and hit the bell notification you should be notified anytime there's a new upload uh, hopefully uh, but from uh, myself and the team and uh, Dr. Norman Finkelstein uh, thank you very much Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah script <laughs>